Audit Committee, we have apologies from the Chairman Daniel McCrossan and Emma Rogan, and Alan Chambers has advised that he's going to be shortly late, but he'll join us as soon as possible. Uh, does any, do you have any interest to clear, Jim, apart from your ongoing uh, complaints with the Ombudsman, or, or, or are you okay? No, no, so we're all good. Lovely. Then, with regard to the draft minutes, which are on pages 6 to 11 of the pack, are you content that they're a true reflection of the last meeting? Yes, I'm happy enough. And I am too, so I'll sign those shortly. Uh, there are three matters arising, as I'm sure you've seen. Uh, first of all, these are, these are pages 13 to 45 of the pack. The first is on page 13, which is a record of a decision taken by the Committee Understanding Order 115.9 to agree the report on the estimates of the Northern Ireland Audit Office and the uh, and NIPSO. Happy enough to note, Jim? Yes. The second issue arising is at page 16, response from the Minister of Finance to the research paper on public audit governance and the role of the accounting officer. So in relation to appointing the CNAG as the accounting officer for the audit office, the Minister has highlighted that it's a well-established convention that his department carries out a general rule in appointing heads of all departments as accounting officers. The Minister has confirmed that his department does not have any rule responsibility for agreeing or approving the accounts, and that uh, DOF's role in the process is just administrative and carrying out high-level check on formatting against requirements. So it's the, it's the Audit Office's external auditor who certifies the accounts. So with regard to the appointment of the uh, Audit Office External Auditor, the Minister has highlighted that the power for appointing the External Auditor sits more properly with the Assembly than DOF. And that's probably fair enough. So the Minister has proposed that his department takes forward work to make this change once time permits, and in the, in the meantime, his officials will consider the most appropriate vehicle to take forward the necessary legislative changes and is going to liaise with the clerk. Are you happy enough to note that for now and consider it later? In the yes, review? happy to note. Yeah. So the last uh, matter arising is a paper from RAIS on the investigation of complaints against councillors for breaches of the code. So we had asked for that um, on the, in the course of our discovery on positions in other UK jurisdictions relating to the investigation and adjudication of complaints against councillors uh, who may fail to comply with their relevant code. RAIS has also included the Republic in the paper to give a comprehensive review. So in the course of that, it seems that NIPSO is in a unique position in terms of investigating and adjudicating on complaints. Yes. Jim, are you satisfied um, that this issue can be considered further at a later stage? Now, I appreciate the Ombudsman's coming in today, so we, I mean, you can choose to raise it if you so wish, but are you happy enough that it's for well, now to know? I think the paper uh, confirms what I think we knew, Yeah. Uh, and it's something that I do want to further explore at some appropriate point. I don't know whether that's today or otherwise, but like I have explored it with the Ombudsman. Yeah. Fairly extensive. I'm not sure there's much new there. No. Well, look, I mean, if, if, if you feel it comes up today in your flow, work away, and yeah. otherwise we'll still yeah. put it on the agenda for later as, as part of the review. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Right. We are now about to move to oral evidence. So it's going to be pages 47 to 101 of the pack for the relevant papers. Let me just get this up now. Right, we had previously agreed to invite the chairpersons of the statutory audit boards in England, Scotland and Wales to give oral evidence on our review of the governance and uh, accountability arrangements for the audit office in NIPSO. So Dame Fiona Reynolds, who's the chairperson of the National Audit Office 
and Ms Lindsay Foister, who's the chairperson of Audit Wales, are with us today to give evidence as part of our review. Professor Alan Alexander, who's the chairperson of Audit Scotland, is unable to attend today, but he's going to give evidence on the 7th of July. So with that, could I welcome Dame Fiona Reynolds and Ms Lindsay Foister to the meeting? Right, Clark advised me that Lindsay is still trying to connect, but Dame Fiona, you're very welcome, and I apologise for the short delay. Hello, yeah, lovely to be with you, thank you. Well, we're we're very grateful for you taking the time, and certainly in circumstances where it had to be rearranged um, previously, we're very grateful that that, uh, you bore with us and that you're with us now, so thank you very much indeed. (laughs) No problem, no problem, it's it's probably easier this way than coming to see you, sadly, as much as I would love to come to see you. Yeah, I I think we're all ready for travel. at this point but like thank you so much for taking the time and could I now invite you to to make your opening remarks and then after that we may have some questions if that's if that's okay thank you thank you indeed yes well I should begin actually by saying I'm, I'm a rather new chair of the NAO I only took up my role in January of this year so what I thought I'd do is keep my opening remarks quite short um, and then you know to answer any questions that you've got about the, the way things work Um, But what's very clear to me uh, already is that there are some really important principles that uh, guide the work of the NAO board um, in in England. And these are, first of all, uh, to respect and maintain the independence of the controller and auditor general in his statutory role, and connected with that, of course, uh, to to respect and maintain the independence of the NAO, um, as an organisation reporting to Parliament. And, and as you may know, we, we have a, an established code of practice which sets out very clearly what that relationship is. Um, I'm happy to elaborate on that uh, in questions. The second kind of guiding principle is to ensure that we focus on our strategy and its delivery rather than on operational details, which are left to the staff under the um, management of the Controller and Auditor General. Uh, the third is to provide support and appropriate challenge to the CNAG and his senior team. And the fourth is to bring our expertise and experience to support the NAO's mission and purpose. So most of what we do is really wrapped up in those four guiding principles. Um, And if you've got questions on any of them or how things work in practice, I'd be delighted uh, to answer them. I thought I'd just say something about the composition of our board because it's changed quite a lot in recent months. Um, in addition to my arrival as the new chair, we have two new non-executive members of the board. Uh, Sir Martin Donnelly, who's a former permanent secretary, a very experienced civil servant, which of course is immensely useful to have his experience. Uh, Gaynor Bagley, who was a former partner at PwC and now holds a number of non-executive roles. And they join the two continuing non-executive members, who are Janet Eilbeck, who is also a former partner at PwC, and she chairs our audit committee, and Dame Claire Tickell, who is an independent director at the John Lewis Partnership and uh, a former charity chief executive, as indeed am I. Uh, Her charity was the Charity Action for Children. So we have a really strong and well-qualified group of non-executives on our board, and you know, one of our ambitions is to make sure that we always add value to the work of the NAO and, and bring our expertise uh, into the room um, as, as we can. So, I mean, that, that's really all I wanted to say at the outset, but I'm um, very happy to answer questions and to elaborate further. 
Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Um, we'll see. I've just had a note the clerk advises me that Ms. Foister has now joined. I, I can't see her. Lindsay, are you with us? I, I am. I have to... Uh to find a way in. Hello. Lovely. Hi. Thank you so much for joining with us today and we appreciate um, that you that you rescheduled uh, due to commitments that we had. So we're very grateful that you've, you've taken the time to be with us. We've just heard from Dame Fiona. I'm not sure if you heard her remarks, did you? I, I heard the, the, the last kind of few minutes of that, yes. Lovely. In that case, could we now invite you to give us your opening statement and then we'll, we'll have a conversation after that? Yes, thank, thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me to um, give thank oral you. evidence today as part of your review. And I'm going to read from my notes just to get through as much as I can in, in the time available. So I, I want to set out, um, as I think um, Dame Fiona was doing in my opening remarks, something about the uh, the basis on which the Wales Audit Office Board was established, its makeup, um, the roles and responsibilities of the board and its members. Um, also a little bit about how it works in practice in a way that protects the independence of the Auditor General for Wales whilst es establishing effective and robust governance, but I'm aware that that may be an area to kind of cover more in, in terms of the questions. So just by way, very briefly, of background, I've been a non-executive member of the Wales Audit Office Board since 2015, which was one year after it was um, set up fully in place, having been established through the Public Audit Wales Act in 2013. I was appointed by the Senate as chair in October 2020 uh, and my maximum eight-year term runs until March 2023. Um, an interesting hearing uh, what was just being said, my background is in the third sector um, and I'm not an auditor or a finance professional but I think it reflects the, the depth of diversity and different perspectives that we have around the board table. Uh, the, in terms of the composition of the board, I think it's a really interesting model. It was uh, unique for the public sector in Wales at the time. Um, it has nine members, which I know is um, uh, larger than some. However, that has been um, established in that way to accommodate the unique feature that we have of two elected employee board members. Um, in all, there are five non-executive board members, including the chair, and that is to ensure the um, majority of non-executive uh, members is required in terms of the quorum. As I say, there are the two elected employee members, um, as well as then the Auditor General, who's also the Chief Executive and Accounting Officer, as you'll know. And he, there is also his nominated elected employee member, nominated employee member. Um, and the non-executive members have the um, the role of approving that appointment so can also decline it um, by implication um, and that is currently the executive director for corporate services at Wales Audio Office. Uh, I think it might be worth noting that all board members can't take up office on boards of any of the other public bodies that are audited by Audit Wales um, and must consult on any kind of potential conflicts um, that would arise out of any activities um, outside of you know in relation to their work paid or unpaid outside of their role on the board of um, Audit Wales. And that, again, links directly into the requirement to maintain the independence of, of the Auditor General. The board has two committees. We've got an Audit and Risk Assurance Committee and the Remuneration and HR Committee, which have both got advisory roles to the board. Um, and as well as the 
having the non-executive members as chairs of those committees and chairs of the board, which is a statutory requirement. The non-executive, um, one of the non-executive members is also appointed by the board to be the senior independent uh, director, and they have a specific role in supporting the chair. They carry out the chair's annual performance appraisal, as well as having oversight of the election process with support from the board secretary for the elected employee members. Um, we also have board link roles, which I think is an area um, uh, of interest, which relate to areas that are strategically significant. Examples of that around equalities and inclusion, data analytics, cybersecurity, sustainable development, and more recently, audit quality. And you can imagine that in order to support the effective running of those governance arrangements, both practically and in terms of governance best practice, we have the support of the uh, board secretary, as well as a half-time, half-full-time equivalent role that supports the executive leadership team, um, and, that, and they are a planning and reporting specialist. And I make reference to that to highlight that in order to enable governance arrangements, um, particularly on a statutory basis, to operate effectively, there, there clearly is, as I'm sure you'll be aware, a cost attached to that. So moving on to the roles and responsibilities, um, I'm, a, I'm aware that there's going to be an understandable focus on how, with a statutory board in place, the independence of the Auditor General is protected. In my experience, this has worked well in Wales um, and is established, as, as we've heard for National Audit Office, established through statute and laid out clearly in our governance framework documents. And crucially, the code of relationship practice between the Auditor General the Wales and the Wales Audit Office sets out clearly the governance framework highlighting the Auditor General's in independence as a corporation sole, setting out the principles governing the relationship uh, between the two bodies, and clearly sets out the responsibilities of the Wales Audit Office Board, as well as what it cannot do in terms of encroaching on the Auditor General's independence. Um, and that document has to be laid before and approved by the Senate. Um, under the Public Audit Wales Act, the Auditor General is a corporation sole, as I've said, and has complete discretion as how they uh, exercise their audit functions as laid out under the Act. Uh, they do have to have regard to the advice given by the Wales Audit Office, but it's um, you know in, entirely up to them. There is no interference in that sense in terms of the individual components of the Auditor General's work programme. But the board is set up to monitor the exercise of those Auditor General functions and we may provide advice, but we must ensure the provision of resources required for the exercise of those functions and we must preserve the operational independence of the Auditor General and do nothing to undermine that. So thinking about how that works in practice, very briefly, um, I think it's worth kind of having that sense that the board's remit is primarily about running the business and ensuring that um, Audit Wales is a model organisation for the um, public sector in Wales. Um, the board, does, as I say, doesn't seek to influence individual components of the Auditor General's work. However, it's, it is really important that in order to provide the resources needed to carry out that work, that the board has a good understanding of the, um, of the work um, that the Auditor General uh, is undertaking. So we have formal processes for that, which I'm happy to go into in, in more detail, um, but, but um, at very top level, jointly preparing the annual plan 
is something that we, we have to do under statute, and that really enables the board to understand the nature and scope of the Auditor General's work programme. And alongside that, we review the workforce strategy, which is the bit then around how we're ensuring we're providing the resources that are that are needed. And there are another a number of other things that we we do in the course of our business, which means that we have that um, oversight that enables us to monitor the exercise of the Auditor General's function. We have other governance documents, such as the schemes delegation, which make things crystal clear about where responsibilities lie, um, and very clear board and committee terms of reference and the board's code of conduct. Um, there's, there's a lot more that I can go into in, in a bit more detail, but I'm, I think it's important the committee gets the opportunity to ask the questions in the areas that they're, that they're interested. So I hope that's a, a reasonable starter. Thank you very much, ladies. Much appreciated. Jim. Do you have anything with which you wish to follow up? Yeah, first of all, thank you for the evidence. But I uh, just want to understand a little better. On the occasions when either of you need to challenge the other office, what is the, is there a formalised process? Is it an informal process, or is it a combination, or what kind of go through both? Thank you. Shall I, shall I begin? Um, it's, not, it's not a formal process. Um, it's much more around the, the discussion around the table on the basis of papers provided by the executive, where the board members, the non-executive members, may be saying, actually, have you thought of this? Or in our experience, um, you know, things don't necessarily work out in the way that you, you hope and, and predict they will. So, for example, we, we have a major audit transformation program, which is uh, we've embarked on, which is to improve the um, underlying sort of technical and, and um, computerized basis of, of how we manage uh, our audit systems. And it's, it's, it's a big um, investment and a big transformation program, and a number of the board members have a lot of experience of this kind of uh, transformation program. And so we would be, it wouldn't be cha challenging in a sort of a negative way, it's a very constructive form of challenge, but saying, in our experience, we need to pay, place more emphasis on certain aspects or take great care over particular elements of the programme. So it, it's that kind of challenge. But, but if you need it, do you have the power to compel the production of papers, etc.? Um, in my experience, which is recent, we have never had to compel. Um, if we ask for things, the executive is only too ready, in my experience so far, to say yes, we will, we will produce a paper. But, but do you have the formal power of a camp to compel? Um, I think it depends what it would be on, because we don't have control over the audit program. That is the CNAG, so I don't think we could require the CAG, to, for example, to produce a paper that would take away his authority. Um, but we could certainly. Um, anything to do with the strategy um, or our um, the, the responsibilities, for example, we approve the, the, the programme um, of NAO services and budgets, we could require papers on, on things where we have in our set out in our code of practice where we have the responsibility. In terms of setting your strategy, um, is that shipped exclusively by yourselves or does the um, the strategy was prepared um, in a, a, an iterative way with the senior staff led by the CNAG 
um, developing um, proposals for strategy which were then discussed extensively uh, with the board and indeed with, with the staff within the office um, before it was finalised. It was finalised by the board uh, on the basis of a, a process, as I say, of debate and discussion. And it's been in place now only for just over a year. This is the first strategy the NAO has had. Um, my sense is that it's proving extremely helpful uh, to have a strategy and to be really clear what our long-term objectives are. I can give you some examples of what's in the strategy, if that would be helpful. Yeah, maybe you would. We have three what we call our strategic priorities. Um, the first is to support effective accountability and scrutiny. Uh, the second is to ensure that our work leads to better outcomes and value for money. And the third is to provide accessible independent insight. And, and you may have got a sense that we are moving more to that area of, of insight over time. Um, and underneath those three strategic priorities, we have three strategic enablers. One is to attract and retain and develop high quality people. Um, second, to make effective use of technology, data and knowledge, and that's where our uh, audit transformation program sits. And third, um, to be an exemplar organisation, um, and that includes on diversity. So they're all you know, big strategic um, areas of work where we, we're ambitious to, uh, to move so, forward. How do you measure success, for example, in the second strategy? Well, we have KPIs, which, um, for example, on diversity and inclusion, we have specific goals in relation to the percentage of staff in different um, categories. Um, around the effective use of data, you know, we have clear KPIs there. Around, um, mostly around asking our people whether they think as an organisation we are being effective. That's quite a standard way of, of judging success, is to ask your own staff whether they feel uh, you're effective. Um, and of course, um, you know, the, the, the strategic enabler around people is dependent uh, um, significantly on staff survey feedback, where the staff um, indicate, you know, how motivated and engaged in their work and the, the quality of their management. So it's quite a well-developed set of... But how do you judge value for money? Uh, how do we judge value for money? Uh, it's a co very good question that we're, we constantly uh, explore. Um, we you know, have a, a good challenge each year from the uh, Public Accounts Commission who require us to produce, and they're in a sense our, our regulator in, in Parliament, and they require us to produce evidence each year on um, how we've spent our resources um, the, the, the outputs from our activity and whether we believe they're effective. And then you also have to present budgets for the following year, which they give a pretty fierce scrutiny to, to make sure that uh, we are using our resources well and wisely. The final question for you is, how do you avoid cosy um, in a relationship? developing That's a really good question and it's one that's very, very much in, in my mind as a new chair because we are very clear as a board that we want to be supportive and to help the NAO to achieve its objectives, um, but we also want to make sure that we aren't just taking the uh, papers and uh, the executive 
proposals. So um, we do a board assessment review every year, which we've just completed. Um, one of the questions we ask is, is whether we feel they are being challenging enough and whether the executive feel they are getting challenged as well as support from us. Okay. Do, do you want me to come in and give a perspective from Wales on those questions? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Okay. Um, I think on the first point, which was about if there are concerns, um, is there a statutory kind of route around that? I, I would take the view that there's a number of ways in which it's really important to build relationships and to make so whatever's in statute it's really important that actually it works in operation which is around the relationships and the trust that gets built between um, the board including the executive members of the board um, and the executive leadership team including the auditor general and um, I, I think that that's something that I've seen work very well in the Wales Audit Office. I think the relationship between the Chair and the Auditor-General is very important in, in terms of that. Um, so as well as the relationship building kind of behind the scenes and around the meetings, there's also then, as, as uh, was just described in relation to the um, NAO board, uh, space, and I think the Chair helps to create that, but space for constructive challenge and um, the ability for the different perspectives to be heard and listened to and we build on try to take that strengths-based approach and build on um, what's presented to us and any concerns and the board's role in a lot of that is to seek assurance so if the um, executive leadership team are presenting something to us that's you know a lot of time and effort has gone into the development of and it might be over a period of time and it's it's touched in to the board for early engagement at one stage but is coming back to us at a later stage then we'll be seeking assurance that any concerns that have been raised have been addressed um, so it, it's a process it's not just a, a one-off kind of confrontation around around issues but i would also say that in extremists which fortunately haven't had to have to um deal with but in extremists the chair can go directly to the chair of in our case the finance committee which is our um, scrutiny board within the Senate and the chairs of our subcommittee of our committees of the board can also do that so we do have a route in statute by which we can uh, pick up on major concerns but that would absolutely be well down the line of, of um, as I say building on and working around relationships and using our governance processes appropriately um, you asked about strategy and how was that developed um, again that is something that um, sits with it, the preparation and some of the initial thinking will sit with the um, executive leadership team including the auditor general the board get, was has been involved at a very early stage in sharing perspectives and thought thinking around that our last uh, strategy has has pushed us much as you've heard for um, national audit office in the direction of thinking more about how can our insight and, and this wealth of data that we have available to us be used to good effect for the public sector, particularly in terms of service improvement and cost effectiveness and efficiencies. Um, so we've been, as the board, we are then jointly involved, if you like, in discussing and, and deciding on the final strategy. Uh, and it becomes the strategy of the board, very clearly is then the strategy of the board. Um, and in terms of how we measure success, um, very similar um, in terms of the performance indicators and at each uh, board meeting, 
that being one of the cornerstones of kind of governance framework, then we will look at the um, performance measures for that period. Um, and we have challenged around, are these measuring the right things? Are these um, telling us not just the number of activity, but the impact and the, and the influence that these activities have? And that is, has led to there being a review of our key performance indicator suite, um, which will be conducted and completed at the start of 22-23. So it shows that the dialogue that goes on with the board um, leads to further developments and improvements. Um, and in terms of the, the uh, cosy relationship, I think the, the fact that we have um, a clear distinction of roles set out, the code of um, relationship practice is very important as an underpinning to that, uh, but it's really important in practice the role again of the chair of making sure that we're not just seeing things through because we think it's a good job done, but we are making sure that we've conducted the appropriate level of scrutiny and, and received the appropriate level of assurance um, as we go through. So I hope that helps, and similarly our finance committee also is involved in uh, quite uh, close scrutiny of whether those governance arrangements are working, and particularly in relation to our estimate and our annual plan on an annual basis. Thank you. Jim, you can follow up, you're good. You're fine. No, yeah. that's fine. Okay. Alan, welcome to the meeting. I appreciate that you didn't hear. Uh, Dame Fiona and Lindsay's presentations. Dame Fiona is the chairperson of the National Audit Office and Lindsay Foister is the chairperson of Audit Wales. But from, from what you've heard there in terms of the questions and answers from Jim uh, and to Jim, do you have anything on which you wish to follow up? Alan? Hello, Alan, can you hear me? No, no problem, thank you. Ladies, thank you so much um, for the information you've given. I suppose you'll appreciate from our point of view, we are trying to find the balance between allowing the audit office to be independent and the CNAG to be independent, but also that there are, account there are accountability mechanisms. And it seems from our perspective that what we have is we have the ability to scrutinise their budgets, um, but in you have a code of practice and we have an MOU, which, and we're not really clear the strengths of that, and it'd be useful to understand, I, I don't know, have you ladies seen our MOU? I haven't. No, I haven't seen it, I'm afraid. It would be interesting, I suppose, to understand, to your mind, I suppose, the pros and cons of a code of practice. Uh, I would also be interested in your views on, I, I, I see that you, you kind of, you've both been appointed by the Senate and so on and, and, and Parliament, and I'm interested in, I suppose, what is, if it's your view that there is space for uh, a constructive, challenging conversation, or if that's prohibited somewhat in circumstances where the CNAG appoints his own board, because that's what we have here, and whether or not you consider that's a weakness or are there benefits to that. Could I ask you those two initially, please? 
Shall I kick off? Um, I, I, we've found our, our code of practice very helpful. In fact, we are just going to refresh it and check that it's completely um, up to date in, in the next few months. But our code of practice is just really clear. Um, and, you know, to me, it, it's helpful to have something which has that status and recognition. Um, it, it's, it's helpful to uh, emphasize the points around the complete independence of the CNAG and setting the audit program and then holding, uh, holding the, the, the audit quality responsibilities. Um, but it makes it also clear what our responsibilities are in relation to the strategy, the budget, the presentation to the PPAC and, and all the rest of it. So I have to say, you know, I found the uh, question of having a clear code of practice you know, certainly very useful um, in, our, in our work so far. Um, I personally also think it helps that you know both I am appointed by Parliament and that I chair the process by which new board members are appointed. It allows us to be really clear and strategic about the skills that we need and seek. Um, and then it, it also allows us you know, to, to, I think, think quite properly how we can best support and also challenge the CNAG, which I think would be different if the board members were appointed by the CNAG. So that, those are my answers, but I think the current safeguards and responsibilities we have are pretty, pretty clear and well set out. Yeah, so if I come in, come in there, I, I would certainly agree with that. And um, our code of, code of relationship practice is, um, as I say, you know, it really sets things out clearly. It is, the, it is what underpins, so I think the day-to-day -day operation of um, how, the, as I've already explained, of how the board and the Auditor General can conduct their business is kind of understood in a broad sense. But if we ever wanted to kind of go back and just double check, then there is something that totally really does underpin that. And um, I, I think, although I, I don't feel that I can you know, give opinion directly on the arrangements in Northern Ireland, um, I think that certainly there's a potential for a sense of, even if it's a, a perception externally, for a sense of cosy relationships to, to build and develop if the Auditor General was appointing their own advisory board. Uh, that's not to say that that's the situation there, but um, I, you know, I could understand that there's the potential for uh, that perception to, to develop. Um, and as I say, personally, I find the, having the statutory board and the clarity um, and distinction between the roles really helpful. Thank you. And are your codes of practice and and the relations are are those are those in statute? Or are they just guidance or it's in statute that we have to have one and and when we um, first established one and it was reviewed last in 2019, um, that is then laid before and has to be approved by the Senate. Ours is approved by the Public Accounts Commission, who as I've mentioned earlier is our regulator and, and they also approve the appointments that I recommend to them to the board. So there is that parliamentary sort of oversight uh, very clearly established, which again I think we, we find helpful. One of you in your answers made reference to the key skill sets required for an effective board. And I appreciate that you're both, I suppose you have links to the business and charity sectors. So to your mind, what are the key skill sets required for an effective board? in circumstances where there is corporatization in a way that's different from ours? Well, perhaps again, I'll, I'll start and Lindsay can, can come in. Yeah, uh, fine. But, but my, my, my sense, I mean, clearly, 
Um, we need people who have um, sufficient knowledge of the work of the NAO. So that, as I've mentioned, we have two people who've worked in the um, accountancy sector for, at, and, and achieved great prominence um, and respect. So, you know, detailed knowledge of audit. I'm not an auditor in, in, in any, any sense, but uh, we also want people, in a sense, who've done that from the detail, um, who have a good, you know, strategic skills and responsibilities, and who also understand public policy and public expenditure in its broadest sense, because we are not only working in audit, as you know, we're working for value for money, and increasingly looking at the questions of, of broader insights that are immense knowledge gained from many years and a very broad spectrum of, of um, analyses can, can be brought to, to help shape improvement and, and you know I think we're all very motivated by not just the findings that we um, that emerge from our work but that they lead to improvement and, and better outcomes for the public. So we want people with the ability to bring um, their knowledge and experience to the board um, who understand the work of the NAO sufficiently well but who are in a sense not so enmeshed in it that they can't always see the bigger picture which is uh, a very very important um, ability. So I hope that's Helpful. It doesn't constrain us to different sectors. I mean, we could bring people from um, you know, many sectors, but those are the core things that I, I would recognise. Yes, if I just come in on that, um, certainly can, can concur with um, all of those areas. I think one of the things to recognise is that in board, you will not necessarily have everything around the table in the board members because of just the constraints of the numbers of people that, that you have access to. Um, and the numbers of board members. Uh, but I think particularly that ability to stand back, see the bigger picture, be able to kind of connect into what's happening in the wider world. Um, and as well as that direct focus around understanding the, the nature of audit work and, and the work that's being done in service improvement work as well. Um, there, as, as we just heard, and it's about um, MAO and also in the Wales Audit Office, a lot of public sector organisations are going through considerable transformation at the moment, whether that's around the kind of the technical data analytics type tra transformation that we've recently gone through, uh, looking at improving business systems and systems that support uh, the um, use of data and, and our uh, audit work, then having people who've got that kind of experience and that kind of background doesn't have to directly be in the audit world. So I think it's about looking at what the needs are at the time. One of the things that I'm aware is because in for the Wales Audit Office Board, those appointments happen for non-executives through the um, Finance Committee. Um, then it's important that the um, current board and the, through the chair has the ability to highlight the gaps that we believe exist, exist in terms of knowledge and skills um, going forward. And we also have um, the insight from the staff perspective coming in through the elected employee members um, onto our board, which has added a, a real richness and, and value into um, all of our discussions. So something that I would, that I would um, kind of strongly advocate that you look, look at um, because it's it's added value certainly in terms of our board. I should just on that last point say that we don't have that arrangement in the NAO. Um, we have, um, in addition to the CNAG, three executive members of the board who are all members of the senior team, but, um, but we don't have elected 
members um, and it's not something that I've therefore experienced but we certainly do an enormous amount of engagement with staff um, in the NAO. I've been enormously impressed actually by the quality and regularity of our staff surveys and for example we're having a big consultation at the moment about the future of working arrangements uh, post-COVID where you know it's a very inclusive and deep listening process as well as clearly thinking what the organisation needs so I I think it is really important that there's a really effective engagement with the staff um, you know, throughout the organisation. Yeah, I must say I concur. Uh, and I suppose on the back of that then, just last question if I may, on the back of that with regard to the staff, I suppose one of the key tenets of accountability to my mind is a, a robust whistleblowing policy. Uh, could you perhaps outline uh, your own whistleblowing policy and the appeal mechanisms within that, please. I'm going to hand that one to Lindsay. <laughs> she probably <Sorry>. knows more. <laughs> um, in, in terms of whistleblowing, um, there's, there's two elements to that. One is whistleblowing in terms of our audit work externally, and that's dealt with through the Auditor General's kind of side of, of things. So that's if public bodies or the members of the public want to whistleblow on our on the bodies that we audit. So that's one side. The other side is about whistleblowing within our um, within Audit Wales. Um, and the senior independent director that I mentioned is the designated board member who is um, the whistleblowing um, uh, kind of lead and would be the person who would be contacted. There is a policy in place, um, and I know that what we aim to do is enable uh, complaints and concerns to be heard as reasonably and as openly as possible. And what we try to do is develop a culture um, and a set of values and behaviours that mean that people feel very free to be able to say if they're not happy with something. We then get a, a whistle, an annual whistleblowing uh, report, um, and also uh, through our audit um, assurance and risk committee, we are looking at the, um, we have internal audit, which uh, also looks at those kind of internal controls and ensures that whistleblowing is highlighted uh, within their reports as well. Thank you very I'm much. I'm afraid I'm not in a position to give you chapter and verse and on the detail of ours, but uh, um, I can write to you if there's anything different to say from that which Lindsay described, which all is recognisable to me, but I, I don't have the, the detail at my fingertips, I'm afraid. That would be lovely. Thank you very much, Dame Fiona. Ladies, thank you very much. We very much appreciate your time and your evidence. It's been helpful for us. And, uh, and once again, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to meet you. And I was going to say, if there is anything else that you want to follow up or get more detail on, then be more than happy to provide you with um, more written information. Uh, a lot of what I've talked about is public access on our website and not through our publication scheme. But there is, you know, any further information, then please do get in touch. That's great. Thank you very much indeed. All the very best. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. We still have Alan and Jim? Okay. Gents, mm -hmm. yeah. we're now about to move on to page 104 of your meeting pack. So, uh, we'll see, so that includes, that's a written, that's written evidence from the Audit and Risk Committees and other jurisdictions on the Welsh Advisory Board. Are you happy enough to note those for now? Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, now we have, joining us in person, 
we're going to have Margaret Kelly, the Ombudsman, Sean Martin, Donald Curtin, and John McGinnity is going to join us via Starleaf. Hello, folks, how are you? So, NIPSO now is going to give us evidence on the committee's review of the governance accountability arrangements for their organisation. So, folks, you're very welcome. It's lovely to have you with us in person. <laughs> lovely to be here in person. Someday, John, someday we'll see you in person. Are you with us? <laughs> There's John, he's with us. Okay. Margaret, we're, we're sorry that you've been slightly delayed, um, but we had a few technical issues at the start, as we uh, as we always do, yet was ever thus. But we're sorted out now, and Margaret, if, if I may once yourself, can I invite you to make your opening statement, please? Thank you. It's lovely, Joanne. Thank you. So, good afternoon, and afternoon to the other um, committee members, and thanks for the opportunity just to say a few words. Um, as I've outlined in my paper, I welcome this very timely review of governance and accountability arrangements. And as a still relatively newly appointed ombudsman, these are issues that I have been thinking about and taking up my office. Um, and I do hope that my experience as someone previously involved in service delivery and advocacy brings that fresh perspective to how, as ombudsman, we make decisions and how we make people feel when we're making those decisions. And I am committed to openness and engagement in delivering the function of my office. Um, I've drawn your attention to the importance of the independence of the Office of the Ombudsman, and I do so because I believe that the value and the integrity of the Office lies in its independence. And this isn't just because that independence is enshrined um, in the Venice Principles and internationally recognised, nor indeed that our 2016 Northern Ireland Ombudsman legislation is seen as best practice. Um, but it's because I believe that the trust of the average citizen in Northern Ireland in bringing their cases to my office for resolution lies in the value of our independence. And if that independence was to be compromised, then I think it would undermine that basic contract that I think the office has with the citizens. That issues that they need to be resolved or which require redress get independently, impartially and fairly investigated without any other consideration and that it is demonstrable that that is the case, I think is what upholds the contract between the Ombudsman, the citizens of Northern Ireland and my independence. I do believe that the key accountability for me as Ombudsman is as an officer of the Assembly and I believe that the establishment of a statutory board would compromise that accountability. I think it potentially could put a barrier between that accountability, and I do see this committee, and I think I've said this to the committee before, as one of my really key mechanisms for accountability. Um, in my paper, I've suggested a number of possible proposals that the committee may want to think about in their review of governance and accountability. So obviously the review of our memorandum of understanding, and it would be really good to do that um, while I'm still relatively new in role. Um, the development of a closer working relationship with the audit committee, and particularly in terms of me bringing a wider range of reports to the committee, and the committee having some role around the dissemination of that report in, in the assembly. Um, I want to explore with the Ombudsman Association a possible peer review exercise 
for the office. And some other things like undertake a possible review of the recruitment, operation, membership and skills of our ARC. Happy to publish summaries of our audit reports on our website. Um, and review some of our current service standards processes and benchmark those against other jurisdictions. We've just completed a public awareness survey and we are just in process of doing a customer satisfaction survey. And I think I said to committee they were the first. Um, and I think a commitment to doing those every three years and making those results public are also part of that transparency and openness. Um, and I do think it's been very helpful for committee to get me engaged in thinking about those by this review. Um, I'm very happy to take questions and, and obviously very happy to discuss any element of it. Thank you very much, Margaret. Gents, before I open the floor to the members for questions, is there anything else any of you wish to add? I think, Donald, you were going to make a Donald, you're going to make a statement. E e yes, with, with your permission, Chair, I, I'd like to just introduce myself. Um, my background is just uh, uh, with a quick couple of minutes, and I would just give you a, a greater insight, possibly. possibly. So, uh, so I'm Donald Curtin. I'm the Chair of the Audit Risk Committee of the, the NIPSO. I was appointed two years ago. Um, my background is as a practicing auditor and accountant over 32 years. In addition to that, I've in excess of 60 years accumulated as an independent non-exec director on a number of uh, different boards of directors. So they would go from the likes of um, the Office of Public Procurement, the National Treatment Purchase Fund, the Arts Council, um, Early Childhood Ireland, the Irish College in Levain, um, Green Effects Investments, BLC. Um, previously, I've held a similar post with the likes of the Dublin Docklands Development Authority, Health Insurance Authority, Chambers Ireland, um, and such like that way. I, as you would well imagine, as a practicing uh, auditor and accountant, I've always had a very strong engagement around audit and uh, risk committees. Um, when I was a practitioner, that was often in servicing those committees or giving advice, that sort of thing. In more recent time, um, I would be a member of approximately 10 audit and risk committees. I would chair five of those. So I would chair the likes of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society in London and the Arts Council Early Childhood Ireland. I would be a member of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators Audit and Risk Committee in London, the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries in London also, Cardiff University and the Health um, Regulatory Authority and, and also the National Treatment Purchase Fund. I'd be a member of three different accountancy bodies, the likes of also the um, Audit Committee Institute, the Institute of Directors as well as the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. My role as a chair um, is twofold. Number one is to, to play a role as an individual member and to provide healthy challenge and encourage other committee members around professional scepticism. Um, but also there is that role, and you would have seen it from the, my paper, the, the role around support. Um, and whether that's to mentor a particular situation, sharing knowledge, sometimes being able to listen and do the deeper dive into a particular situation. What is uh, very different uh, to, say, Margaret's own independence, which we was talking about, 
is the independence that the Audit and Risk Committee has and how it exercises that. That comes from being um, attuned to the strategic objectives of the organisation, the transparency of what it's trying to do, but being fearless in its challenge, that sort of thing, that it's neither fear or favour. That also comes down to the, having the right composition of different skill sets on the committee, but also um, the, the, the right mix and term, term limits, that sort of thing, so that, God forbid, none of us go stale or go native, to use the, the, the colloquial expression, that sort of thing. Um, a term I used at, at the time I did the interview for the role, and it's one that I, I still use to this day in all Audit and Risk Committee work, that sort of thing, is the healthy way is always having a certain level of discomfort. Um, what has not been looked at, what has not uh, been picked up and attuned. Um, so, for example, around um, risk management, particular aspects around cybersecurity, doesn't matter how strong your policies or your investment in technology is, there's always a new or a different way, that sort of thing. So, how is the organisation uh, looking towards the, the recent events of COVID have to, uh, taught us? And um, it was extraordinary how quick the NIFSO was able to respond to continuing the delivery of services despite the pandemic being landed on all of us and that sort of thing, even though no risk register would have ever seen um, a pandemic of such coming down the tracks. Um, what also is equally important to me, apart from the normal divided things of internal controls and um, strategy, is the cultures and values in an organisation. Um, for me, it, it's a bit like an, um, the, in the old-fashioned cars of the dipstick uh, checking oil levels, that sort of thing. It, there are time to times around certain, whether they're challenges or reports, that sort of thing, you get a sense of what is the cultures and values of the organisation, that sort of thing. And if that can, no matter how good it is, there's always more that can be done. That can improve governance more than any other particular aspect, in my own view. And that would be my introduction, Chair, if you don't. Thank you very much, Thank John. You. You're going to be kept in your toes there, Mark. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but it's exactly this kind of conversation that we appreciate and that we're looking to have with regard to, you know, proper and better accountability mechanisms. Um, so, uh, gents, Sean, John, you're all okay. We know we can hand over to members. Yes, Jim, can I come to you first? Yeah, can I ask who appoints the risk and audit committee? And the audit and risk committee is appointed in a number of ways, not all at once. So my role as the chair of the audit committee, I was appointed by an interview panel um, that was made up of the then ombudsman and uh, there was an, another two members, if my memory is correct, who sat in in that committee and interviewed myself and others and then as a panel they made the decision and the role was... So a panel different. chaired by the ombudsman makes the appointment of the risk and audit committee, chair? Yeah. That's correct. Uh, do you think that's... 
a sufficient degree of transparency and oversight, such as one might expect? Your, your question is a, is a valid question. From a transparency point of view, I've no difficulty at all because it is very transparent. It's, it's publicly advertised. There's a process in terms of how the shortlisting is done, those who are invited to interview, how um, there is the scoring to offer the role to me or whoever ever else that's done. So it's totally transparent in that way. If on the on the wider question is good corporate governance, in, in my view, you always have a, a difficulty if you disassociate um, the appointment or the selection. You remove the sense of ownership. Um, so, for example, if, if I take a hypothetical situation, if you were to take somebody who's very highly respected and you, you get them to populate an interview panel to decide on who should be the chair uh, of the Audit and Risk Committee, there isn't the same sense of ownership that um, Margaret or whoever is the office holder in terms of having an input into that selection. Now, they shouldn't be able to have the sole decision. Is there a danger of a sense of coziness? There's always a danger of coziness in terms of any relationship, but one of the reasons around term limits, um, so I'm appointed for three years, I can be reappointed for a further two years, but no further than that, is to stop... So, so you're appointed by a panel chaired by the Ombudsman to examine risk in respect of the conduct of the office, and the other part of the message I'm hearing from the Ombudsman herself is that all is good here, we don't need any change, we certainly don't want a statute board. Well, if I, with your permission, if I can deal with what you were saying in reverse order, I would never say everything is okay and nothing requires change. In my own introduction, says I would be in a permanent level of discomfort, not only in my role within the NIPSO office, but in every other audit and risk committee, because we're living in a changing dynamic world. There are always better ways and better practices. Well, well without, without breaking any confidences, give us an example of something you have corrected in your role with the Ombudsman's Office? Okay, um, one example that would come to mind is we've now um, successfully introduced an electronic um, portal for committee meetings and my concerns around that were for a number of reasons. Number one was the the danger of confidential papers being accidentally being leaked into the, the wider arena. There was also issues around when somebody's term of office is over that they still have those papers that have been accumulated through, through the years, that sort of thing. So one of the internal controls that the committee, not just myself, explored out, then the executive took, took it on. They went to market to find out what were best providers. A particular portal was trial run and that is now fully implemented. Who appoints the rest of you for a minute? Um, the rest of the committee, um, we're going through this process at the moment where we're recruiting a member, is made up of a panel of 
myself as chair of the audit and risk committee, Margaret as the ombudsman, and another independent person, so that we get a totally three three different perspectives. So two insiders, point the rest of the committee. Um, well, I, I wouldn't regard myself as an, an insider. I'm, I'm non-executive, but I, I hear what you're saying. Do you not see how it works? Um, yes, I see how it looks, but that would be in line with, with best corporate governance practice. Because would I feel comfortable um, to put the question to you another way? And I'm not being defensive around it because I think your challenge is a healthy challenge, and I, I, I welcome to be able to rethink about it. But if I was to put it in a different way, as chair of the audit risk committee in Ipso or, or anywhere, would I be feel comfortable um, having a, a person appointed? that I'm not on the panel for, or that the CEO in another organisation or the ombudsman in this case. No, I wouldn't. But uh, do I believe it should be just down to the two of us? No. But it effectively is. No, it's not. I, 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 believe me, we went through a very rigorous process recently and we made... So, so just, just to take you back, you're really saying to me you wouldn't want to chair a committee that you couldn't handpick or have a say in handpicking the members on? That does sound a little bit too cosy to me. Okay. It, is, it would be regarded as a dangerous practice from a corporate governance point of view, member, it does. Um, a member of an audit and risk committee be appointed without the involvement of the chair and of the Audit and Risk Committee, and that is from the Financial Reporting Council in London. And why is that? It's because I'm no more than, if you like, steering the ship in my role of an Audit and Risk Committee. I'm not the decision maker, so what we are is the sum of the parts. So I want one of my responsibilities of a chair of an order risk committee is making sure, number one, that exactly what you say is that we don't have that sense of coziness, that we have a sense, a, a, a proper sense of challenge and of openness, but also that we avoid groupthink. So I don't want to treat people who who look like me, sound like me, act like me, that sort of thing, because that's just going to give you the worst version of stereo possible. It's not going to add value. You want the curveballs, you want the different ways of thinking it. So I'm always going to be looking at composition of skill sets and but, the, but the, you don't the, want you don't want to take the risk of having someone else appoint them. No, sorry, it's that's not what I see as a risk. I I I, I see it as um, if someone else appoints it, they're they're not in the shoes. Of the chair, so they don't have that same knowledge to be able to draw down on. Um, but neither do I believe that that sh decision should be my alone or mine and the ombudsman's alone either. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, perhaps, sorry, could yes, I just clarify that um, Donna was in post when I took up post, so I wasn't. I didn't actually appoint Donna. Thanks, Margaret. Alan, do you have anything? Thank you. I missed that. Did Alan say no? Okay. 
just so he said he can hear you. Alan, you're sorry I couldn't hear. You don't have anything? You're okay? Uh, no, I'm content, Chair. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, look, John, obviously you are highly skilled in this area. I mean, you've cited numerous bodies, so I, you know, when I say joke, I don't mean you seriously, you, you know, you're highly qualified for this, but what we're seeking to do is try to find, as you'll appreciate in this inquiry, the right balance between allowing the Ombudsman's Office to be independent, but also to have a degree of accountability that we, that we think may be missing at this stage, because all we are accountable for is your budget, mm -hmm. um, and there's an MOU that we're not sure is sufficiently robust to provide assurances to the public. So in that regard, just to, to follow up on some of the points, you had mentioned there that in circumstances where the Ombudsman will, will remove Margaret from this picture mm -hmm. specifically, but in circumstances where the, the Ombudsman is appointing uh, the chair of, of his or her own Audit and Risk Committee, and mm -hmm. you'd mentioned that's important because of ownership. Mm -hmm. In terms of the opposite side of that, where is the, where is the sense of accountability? That's my first question. Where's the sense of accountability? You know, how do you balance the, the ownership versus the accountability? And the other side of it is, um, can the Ombudsman remove a member of the Audit and Risk Committee? Because in circumstances where the Ombudsman appoints, can the Ombudsman remove? And your second question is a very valid question, and I have to plead the fifth on that in the sense, I, from the letter of appointment, that I don't actually remember. But my, as a professional in that space, everybody has to be removable from any role or position, particularly for bad behaviour or something like that. But it can't be just for something frivolous like, well, I don't like you, or I find you difficult to deal with, or I don't like you, it would have to be something in what I call the bad behaviour category or something like that. But I'll, I'll definitely um, just, make it over that and come back. Your question is exceptionally valid. I mean, you, you can understand in circumstances where if the Audit and Risk Committee is there as a challenge function, yeah. mm -hmm. in circumstances where you know, that a person can challenge and be removed as a result of that challenge, that's a weakness in the system. Yeah. Um, so it would be useful to understand, I suppose, the circumstances around that and what are the categories through which someone may be removed. Uh, let me see. There, I had one other question, if I may. Margaret, if I can take you to your paper, and it's paragraph 5.6. I appreciate what you're... Okay. I, I need to be careful for time on this one, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. You have indicated that, um, and, and you did in fairness outline a number of options that, that yeah. may strengthen accountability with this committee. But in paragraph 5.6, you have indicated uh, that you don't think a statutory board would be uh, consistent with the Venice principles and would potentially interfere with the enhanced accountability arrangement. Could you maybe give a bit Explain more detail on that? Yeah, please. So as, so as part of, and, and I won't, I mean, obviously I've been learning as I go. Um, so as part of preparing this paper, I did speak to all of the other ombudsman's offices in, in all of the other jurisdictions um, and to Peter Tyndall, who did give evidence. And my understanding is that none of the other ombudsman's offices have a statutory board. Um, PHSO has a voluntary board, but the ombudsman is chair of that board. 
So, and for me, that kind of, I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest, that kind of defeats the purpose a wee bit. Um, and I think that's a confusion of role, whereas I think Donald's role is very clear. And my understanding is if you were to appoint, so because when the Ombudsman makes decisions on cases, so we are the decision of last resort other than the court, and that goes to the court, that would go to JR if someone was very unhappy with my decision or felt it had been unfair and inappropriate. To actually put a statutory board in place, you would have to take, my understanding is, Joanne, take the ombudsman out and keep them as a corporation sole, incorporate NIPSO as an organisation, and then you would have to come up with a mechanism by which to appoint a statutory board. So things like the strategic plan or the accounts would go through that process, and the ombudsman would sit separately as a corporation sole. Whereas I think, with I come to committee, and I think committee actually do quite a robust job of looking at things like my account, my strategic plan, my reports, and I think committee really. So who would committee have? So they, I couldn't come to committee and give, well, I could come and give evidence, but I wouldn't be accountable for it in that respect. So committee would have to have the chair of the statutory board come and give you evidence because that would be the decision-making body, if you like. So it, was, it actually makes it quite confusing. And I think the reason that the Venice principles say that the ombudsman should be accountable to the legislator, and in this case through yourselves, is that the ombudsman, that that's a very straight line of accountability and straight line around the independence and the role. And in many respects, I mean, I'm appointed, I've been appointed by the Assembly through an open appointments process. That's where that accountability belongs. So I would almost have to bring my chair with a chair of a statutory board with me to answer my understanding is those statutory questions. I understand. Does that yes, I understand. Sense? Part, of the, part of the difficulty, though, is that ultimately the only scrutiny that there is from this committee is with regard to your budgets. It's not with regard to effectiveness and so on. Um, and that and seems to me, in a public body, a flaw. So I so think I, I have scrutiny via the courts, but I think for this committee to look at the breadth of their scrutiny of the office is certainly something that I think. Yeah, it's, I it's what, what we're trying to establish at this is point, Margaret, is whether. And the depth of but, the scrutiny, I think, it, from this committee to the... To, if you take me out, any no, I, ombudsman... I understand. Yeah, I think the breadth and depth of the scrutiny of this committee to an ombudsman's office, for me, when I considered it, I think that's where that scrutiny rightly sits. And it might be that, as it is currently um, organised, that that breadth and depth is missing. But yes. I think that's... Breadth and depth. The breadth and depth should sit here. Is my personal view on it? See, well, and, and that's part of our concern because at this stage, a memorandum of understanding isn't essentially effective scrutiny, and that's what we're what we're trying to look at throughout all of this. Um, I had one other question with regard to whistleblowing, but time has run out for us. I'm afraid it would be useful. Um, I presume that you you concur, bearing in mind the questions that you're asking of, of public bodies on the public's behalf, yeah. that Oof. you also would have a robust. Uh, whistleblowing policy and consider that to be a key tenet of accountability. reviewed it when I came into role and, it's, and Donald's just done some 
additional training around it and happy to provide it. It would be useful to, to have sight yeah, of that and, and to, to have some it. understanding of the statistics around it and what kinds of things. Yeah. I'm, sorry, Chair, and I appreciate you're caught on time, but one of the reasons why I, want, I wanted to do for myself as Chair of a training course on it was because I wanted to make sure from a cultures and values point of view that it, it, it was transparent in the organisation rather than hidden away in the bottom drawer somewhere. No, that's lovely. And I will provide that. That's all right. Folks, thank you very much Not all. Um, thank for you. your time and for coming to give evidence. It's lovely to see you all and meet those of you who met previously. Thank you very thank much. You very much. OK, members. Uh, right, we're, we're now going to move to the next item of business, which is the June monitoring round. With regard to the independent bodies, and I would refer you to page 272 and 273 of your pack. With regard to correspondence from NIPSO and the Audit Office uh, about the June monitoring round, NIPSO has indicated an ill return, so that's fair enough. The Audit Office indicated that due to difficulties in the recruitment market and continued savings as a result of COVID-19 working arrangements, they have surrendered, well, a surrender of 250,000 approximately is likely to be made. There will also be a transfer of 250,000 to the Audit Office from the Department of Economy in respect of the Small Business Research Initiative funding. So, under the Functioning of Government Miscellaneous Provisions Act, the committee must be advised in writing of the final monitoring round submission within seven days of the submission being made. So we should expect that, that to be available for the next committee meeting, committee meeting because the closing day of returns is Friday. I think it's Friday the 4th? 4th of June. Yeah. So the Assembly Commission did not provide a written response. However, the clerk has been informed at an official level that the return is not likely to be greater than plus or minus 10%. The thresholds for scrutiny by the committee and the Commission's in-year adjustments have not yet been agreed, although an adjustment of plus or minus 10% was proposed by the Commission as the threshold where the committee's views should be sought, although that's not carried across with the other bodies we consider. Could I seek your agreement to add the agreement of thresholds as a substantive agenda item for the next committee meeting, or does anybody have any comment to make on that? All fine. Jim's left. Okay. Right, Alan, it's just you and I. Jim has left the meeting. Right, can I, Alan, can I refer you to page 275, please? Which is the scrutiny schedule. Are you content with that? Content to note? Yes, lovely. And there are two items of right. There are two items of correspondence. Item one point nine at page two seven nine, which is the local government auditor commission. Oh, sorry, the local government commissioner for standards annual report. Content to note? Yes. And the last item is at page three eleven. Item nine point. Two, which is correspondence from clerking and member support in relation to protecting your social media reputation. It's a training course, Alan. I'm sure you've been made aware of this through your own party, so you can tend to note. Mm -hmm. Yep. Any other business? No? Lovely. On that basis, the, the date and time of the next meeting is uh, the set Wednesday, the 7th of July. Thank you very much indeed. Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.